Welcome to Still Unbelievable, a podcast by Reason Press, where we examine religious claims, especially those made by Christians, and we regularly respond to items that are featured on the podcast, Unbelievable. We embrace dialogue, but as sceptical former believers, we will also criticise unfounded claims and unsupported beliefs. Hello everybody, and here is another episode of Still Unbelievable. Matthew Nanjar at the helm as per usual, and with us as a guest is the lovely Erin, adding in another glorious accent into the mix. Welcome to the show, Erin. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be on the podcast. Excellent. Thank you for putting on your poshest, poshest accent there. How fabulous to have you. Now, for those of us, or those of our listeners rather, who might not recognise your accent, tell us a little bit about where you're from, where you are now, and how you got there. So I was born and raised in Belfast in Northern Ireland. Religion-wise, I was raised in a fairly mainline Christian home. We were Presbyterian Church of Ireland for a while, and then Methodist, but always fairly, fairly mainstream. It wasn't until I was a teenager that I sort of got sucked into fundamentalism and I was part of Ian Paisley's denomination and for people who aren't familiar with him he was a real fire and brimstone preacher in Northern Ireland who also ended up being the leader of the country for a while. That was a fun time in my life where I turned into an insufferable fundamentalist but thankfully I did grow out of it because I ended up at theological college and as I'm sure a lot of your guests have told you Theological college is where faith either strengthens or dies, and unfortunately mine went down the completely died route. I still attend church, which is probably what we'll talk about, but the way I interpret religion is vastly, vastly different from how I used to when I was a fundamentalist. Interestingly, because this is still unbelievable, the Unbelievable podcast with Justin Brierley was instrumental in my deconversion, which would probably break his heart. But it's because I listened to it sincerely wanting to agree with the Christian side and being absolutely horrified when I ended up agreeing with the atheist side. So I'm sorry, Justin. Well, it was delightful that you said you were looking forward to being on the show. And I thought, yeah, that's probably because you haven't heard many previous shows. And <laughs> uh, it's fantastic to have you. I, you know, it was an interesting uh, that, that bit about Unbelievable. I started listening to it. After I left Christianity, but not so long after I left Christianity that it might have been possible to change my mind. I started listening uh, to Unbelievable in 2007. I guess I'd been an atheist for four or five years, maybe a little longer than that. But I think I still had a lot of questions about how the world works. You know, what, what is this reality that we live in? I had a similar response to unbelievable and i sort of wonder why they keep the thing going right <laughs> it's a trouncing pretty often and uh, so i had a similar experience so would you say then erin that your faith was savable when you first started listening to unbelievable oh definitely i started listening mainly just for the christian versus christian debates because you know there's a few Calvinist versus Arminian and things like that yeah. that I was interested in at the time. It was only as my years of study went on and 
as my thinking began to change, I started listening to the big Christian versus atheist. Again, at the point where I was trying to cling on to my faith and I was hoping that would do it, but unfortunately it didn't. Or fortunately, depending on your, your view. Yes, depending on your perspective, obviously. Yes. You mentioned you were looking forward to the Christian versus Christian debates. Does that mean then that you were, you were at a point where you were completely unconvinced by the fundamentalism that you're in and so you're looking to find an acceptable version of Christianity or a version of Christianity that could be judged correct? You know, what was it you were looking or hoping for? I had got to the point where I was just disillusioned with fundamentalist form of faith partly for doctrinal reasons but mainly because I didn't like the person it was turning me into and it was affecting my relationship with my parents and I just realised something had to give. So that's when I started looking into more more charitable interpretations of Christianity. Right, okay. To rewind a little bit and to set the scene a bit because I'm a relative local, I'm British and I'm old enough to remember some of the events of what's gone on in Ireland, I'm old enough to quite clearly remember the events of the Good Friday Agreement and that kind of thing. And I'm also old enough to remember some of them, what's euphemistically called the troubles when the IRA were quite active on uh, UK uh, soil in, in England specifically. To set the scene a little bit for people who might not be quite so familiar, what is it or what was it like in Ireland to be part of a, a religious culture growing up in in that kind of environment? So I was born in 1999, which was the year after the Good Friday Agreement. So that's how that's how horrendously young I am. Right, uh, I feel quite embarrassed now. <laughs> so my parents are wonderful people. My father's actually Scottish, so he's he doesn't have, he's not personally involved in the conflict and that he's an outsider to it. And they made sure they sent me to an integrated school because they they didn't want me to grow up they don't they didn't want me to grow up on either side they wanted me to grow up accepting of all people and that that is one of the things that did cause a lot of friction when i did turn to more fundamentalist forms because then i started criticizing catholics and started looking down on catholics and they're like oh no we've raised a bigot I'm assuming that because of some of the history of Ireland, I, I don't want to make this all about Ireland, but I'm just trying to set a little bit of a scene and background. Is it easy in Ireland to fall into that bigoted culture where you look down on, on the other side? Is that a very easy trap to fall into? It is. And I think especially because, like I said, I was raised right. They, my parents did everything they possibly could to make sure that I didn't end up like that. Yet I still did for a while because it is. It's everywhere. Unfortunately, obviously we have improved greatly since the troubles because we're not openly killing each other anymore, but I think the social division is still there. But it, it gets better with each passing generation, so I do have hope for Northern Ireland. <laughs> yes, that, that much is true, and even as an outsider I can see that. So yes, absolutely, I want to echo that, there is hope. You mentioned being born in 99. I wanted to pull in a little more of your background. So we've spoken before, the three of us, off mic and had a, uh, well, for me, it was a perfectly delightful conversation a few weeks ago. And there's some interesting bits of your background, and that is what you're doing education-wise and what you're doing employment-wise. These things are, are somewhat integral, I think, to where we'll go you know, as the as the show progresses, but it, it's not only your religious background 
as a teen that is interesting. It's what you're doing with Christianity right now uh, and education wise and work wise, I think is also, you know, really interesting to me. When I graduated from theological college in Ireland, I was pretty much done with the doctrinal side of things, but I, I was still really captivated by practical theology, which is the idea of faith as it impacts the world for the better. So I'm now studying a master's degree at the University of Glasgow, and my research is all about maritime chaplaincy, which is my favourite thing in the world. It's also incredibly niche, but it is chaplaincy on board cargo ships. So working with, it's often men, sometimes women, but the men who are basically locked up on these ships for nine months of the year. And the role of a chaplain is just to give them someone to talk to, to maybe drive them to the supermarket, just give them a bit of a break from their mundane life. We don't preach at them. So I see that as a much better form of Christianity in action than standing on a street corner and telling people they're going to hell. I that is, can't see any oh, way to contradict that statement. <laughs> I was trying to think of something funny to say, but it's so true. There's no joke I can squeeze out of that. I also need to clarify, I'm not employed. I'm only voluntary. So I do not speak on behalf of the organisation. I am just a skivvy who does it for the fun. But I do hope to be employed someday. Yes, I'm hoping for gainful employment sometime in my life too. <laughs> so that is so you lost the sort of fundamentalist view, and yet you're you know you're, do I remember correctly that you're pursuing an MDiv right now? MTH, same thing. Okay, right. Okay, master's theology. Fair enough. So where do you where do you identify on the spectrum uh, about belief in uh, in a higher power? Do you lean toward, yes, there probably is a higher power. No, there's probably not a higher power. Where, where are you there? And then we can talk about knowledge of, you know, what it would, what it would look like to sort of demonstrate where you are on the scale. So in terms of a God belief, do you identify more as an atheist or more as a Christian? I'm certainly a skeptically leaning agnostic. Mm. Mm. I do I do identify as a Christian, but well, we can probably get into this more. It is much more of a cultural, practical thing than it is a statement of supernatural belief. Well, it's interesting. And in regard to this the sort of epistemology that you hold, do you think that if there is a God out there, we have some hope of finding him or her or it. Are you even worried about that sort of demonstration at this point? Or is the way you view Christianity so cultural that an empirical demonstration of a God really isn't important? I wrestled with that for a long time. And I am at the point now where I think I'm finally at peace with just not knowing. Mm. I think an interesting thing to mention about me that is quite relevant is that I'm on the autism spectrum and there's actually quite a lot of really interesting research showing that for a lot of autistic people, we, we just, 
we don't think teleologically, we don't think supernaturally, we just take mm -hmm. things as they come. So even when I was a Christian, I never felt like I had a relationship with God, even though I really wanted to. I've just, people talk about feeling the presence of something beyond themselves. I've never felt that, however hard I tried. Mm -hmm. I don't, um, as far as I know, I am not on the autism spectrum disorder uh, spectrum anywhere. I, I share that history in that I wanted to believe in a supernatural God, uh, a God that can interfere with the gears of the universe however he wants, right? And he, he can uh, make changes uh, despite natural law, all of that kind of thing. A, a truly supernatural God who, if the universe is not going the way he wants, uh, he can just change the course of the universe because of uh, sheer force of will, right? But over the years, I have been incapable of accepting that at any sort of concrete level. Yeah, and I think that also seems to trip a lot of Christians up, I think, because the portrayal of skeptics is that we're horrible, rebellious people who ran away from God. Yet for a lot of us, we tried our sincerest best to be proper Christians and just couldn't do it, but it was through no lack of effort or desire on our part. Yeah, that's right. I went to, uh, I, I majored in Bible, uh, majored in theology in college, and I get that sort of, uh, I know Matthew's had it, and you probably have too. If you were once a Christian and you're not now, you weren't ever actually a Christian, right? I just want to tell them, look, I, I did five years in university. You know, was, there was no half measures. There were no half measures with me. I, I went when the doors opened. I, you know, I participated in building Sunday school programs. I, I reached out to inner city youth, right? I, and, and even so, I'm where I am because uh, in the end, there were a lot of things about Christianity that failed. One of them is prayer. My honest results with prayer, uh, counting the hits and the misses, were God wasn't out there listening to me. And if he was out there listening, he was ignoring the things that I knew I needed. It's, you know, it is, that, that was the way it was. I think it still is. Matthew, where are you uh, in regard to miracles and where were you in the past? I was all in on miracles at one point. You know, actively seeking and believing that they happened and willfully interpreting even the slightest uh, doubtful event as, as a miracle. So, oh. uh, I'm, I'm obviously now <laughs> almost the opposite to that. But yeah, so I've, I've gone, gone the whole thing. Today, Aaron, you volunteer aboard ship as a Christian. The people that you talk to do they know about your skepticism? Do they know that you're largely agnostic where the central beliefs of Christianity are concerned? Yeah, I've decided to be very open about it, even though it's probably career suicide, because I want to be authentic. I don't want to feel like I'm putting a persona on. And that's actually a big reason why I decided to move to Scotland to do further theological study rather than stay in Ireland, because I feel like Scotland is a much more, it's much more generous in the theologies that it will accept. Like Scotland, mm. Scotland had Richard Holloway, Bishop of Edinburgh, and he was agnostic. 
So if the agnostic can be a bishop, there might be hope for me. <laughs> well, I am aware, I'm pretty sure here in the UK, we've got at least one army chaplain who's a secular humanist chaplain. So I'm pretty sure that in the Merchant Navy, there must be scope for something similar as well. You've got a, a that, that's that's interesting. A, a secular humanist chaplain. I love it. I'm I'm just going to ask Doctor Google that question while you guys carry on talking. So I just want to try and fact check myself while I'm thinking about it. But I'm pretty sure there is. Well, no, I'm, I'm sure you're right. And like Bart Campolo, he had a very famous deconversion, but he's a humanist chaplain now. So you don't need the supernatural to be a chaplain. Ab absolutely. And what's playing through in in my mind is somebody that we've interviewed here on Still Unbelievable and as we're talking that episode has not gone live but it will go live within the next two days and so will have been up for several weeks by the time listeners are listening to this but this person that we interviewed he said that when he came came public and uh, about his loss of faith somebody that he knew opened up to him about his homosexuality and he said it was really impactful for him that while he was a Christian, this person didn't feel that he was a safe person to be honest with. And as soon as he came out and said, I'm no longer Christian, this person then saw him that he was now a safe person in which he could uh, expose his, uh, his deepest fears about. Uh, and so I'm pretty sure that for you in that same situation, the same must also be true. Yeah, I've found that particularly if I put out a controversial blog or video, whatever, that I do get messages from evangelical friends back home who would never say this sort of stuff out loud, but they say that I'm articulating what they've always thought but are just scared to admit, and that it makes them feel better knowing that they're not the only one who has loads of questions. And that's a really sad indictment of some brands of Christianity, that there are people who feel that there's something deep inside them that wants to be compassionate and caring to others but they have this deep-seated fear that if they make it public that they have this compassion for other people that it will cost them dearly there's something about that statement that sentence that set of facts that just seems deeply wrong on every level yeah, and it's why I could just no longer in good conscience stay in the evangelical church. I still go to church, but it's certainly not evangelical. I call myself religious, but not spiritual, because I like flipping that phrase on its head. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm chipping at it now, and it's a phrase I accept on face value. But there was a time in my life where I would have been very puzzled by that. And, and wanted to know on what world you thought you lived. The part of the world that I live in is almost completely orthogonal to what you've described, Aaron, where you have Christian friends, and even though they don't express their doubts and fears out loud, they're at least willing to write you separately, you know, and say that they can commune with you at some level because you are saying the kinds of things that they say internally. You have the kinds of doubts that they have. It is foreign to me. I had a family member say to me a week ago, last Saturday, that uh, this this all happened as a result of uh, 
as a result of the election. This person knows that I'm an atheist and I've expressed doubts to him about God. And, and, and at some point, he seemed to share those doubts. But just in the last week or two, he has called me a baby killer. He had, well, that's probably the kindest thing he said about me. I'll leave it there. And so I guess Christians in this part of the world right now, and this may not be true in five years, but the sort of rhetoric that is coming out of Christians in the United States right now is not that sort of language where we share doubts and fears and hopes and desires. It is incredibly combative. And I, while I hate the word toxic, I'll go, I'll go ahead and I'll go ahead and use it here. And and I just wonder, do you have any of that in the Christian community that you work and and uh, and go to church in? You know, is it? Is there anyone that's combative toward you expressing doubt? I've been very lucky in that, I mean, other than a few people online telling me I'm going to hell, which is right. to be expected, and I don't even know them personally, so I don't care. No one in my personal life has turned on me. You know, I'm still friends with people from previous churches I went to, even though we think totally differently, which is good. I do think it's it's much easier to be a secular Christian in Europe than it is in America. Yeah. For example, there was a, I, I was reading an article about a survey that was done in the Church of England. Um, one third of priests don't believe in a literal resurrection. Six percent don't even believe in God. Uh, so, yeah, the, the religious landscape in Europe, I think, is totally different to America. Yeah, yeah, you couldn't. Yeah, I don't. I don't think you could even get an honest survey on on some of those. <laughs> points. Maybe. I mean, maybe you could. That's that's probably unfair. But uh, by the way, so that that so that the loop is closed, that baby killer uh, uh, comment was made expressly in the context of this is a Bible believing person, and because I'm an atheist, I must also be a baby killer. I, I'm not kidding. If if that sounds shocking to you or the audience, this is this is the kind of vitriol that is actually being expressed, at least in my part of the country, at the moment. Now, most you know, I think most of it's around the election or whatever. But but this is the kind of thing that Christians are willing to say out loud in our part of the world. It's nice to hear that there's hope and that you live in a community where regardless of the doubt you express, well, maybe, I mean, maybe they won't always uh, be so kind. I don't know. But at least at the moment, you're getting support from friends and family, even though you're expressing doubts. I want to encourage more people to be exactly like that, because that seems to be the way toward uh, opening doors to resolve our differences. And uh, so I'm, I'm extremely happy for you. Matthew, you were going to say something. I'm sorry. Only that, you know, just to clarify the comment earlier, I've found a news article from 2010, so 10 years old, in the Scotsman of, of all papers, saying that the Ministry of Defence, that's uh, our the, the department here in the UK that looks after the army, they were looking into having humanist chaplains within the army. So if they were talking about it 10 years ago, I think it's pretty safe to, to bet that there's at least one now, although I haven't actually found a confirmation that there is one. I reckon there must be several, probably at least one in each of the forces. The question I was going to ask you now is just sketch out for us then a little bit what it was that really caused that 
that decline then of, of religiosity. You mentioned about uh, listening to Unbelievable to try to rescue what was left of your faith and found that actually some of the arguments being put there helped you out. But what was it that started it all right at the very beginning? It was a bit like death by a thousand cuts in that it wasn't one thing, but it was just lots mm -hmm. of little things that eventually it all fell apart. So, you know, it started off, like I said, with intra-Christian issues like Calvinism versus Arminianism. I used to be very hardcore Calvinist until I realised that the Calvinist God is actually not terribly nice. So then I became an Arminian. Um, and, you know, studying theology, I, I honestly don't know how anyone can study theology and still come out, you know, completely evangelical. Um, so studying things like church history and seeing how, how frankly arbitrary a lot of church doctrine is you know people were yeah. burning each other over really esoteric issues like does the spirit proceed from the father and the son if you got that wrong you got burnt at the stake yeah. <laughs> it didn't seem like something that was supernaturally guided to me it just seemed like human squabbles um mm -hmm. also reading the bible critically I remember in, in one lecture, so my college was an evangelical college, the lecturer said that the Bible is the word of God because it is self-attesting, which just means the Bible is the word of God because it says so. Yeah. And I remember just sitting there thinking, I am paying £9,000 a year <laughs> to be given circular reasoning. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so... Yeah, it was, things like that started to bother me. And I read all the apologetics books. I read Lee Strobel. I read Evidence That Demands a Verdict. You know, I read it all, but it just, it just never quite convinced me. Mm. And then, and of course, like you said, the prayer issue was definitely a massive one. So, for example, I have arthritis and I've always had arthritis. There have been many times when people have prayed for me, sometimes publicly, which is quite embarrassing, for me to be healed. And I know that they mean well, but it never works. And it's just terribly embarrassing because it feels every time. So that, that, was, that was another knock to my faith. The prayer just seemed terribly arbitrary. Yeah, and and so I identify with that uh, that bit too. Uh, if prayer is arbitrary, healing is at least as arbitrary, right? If there if there are any miracles out there, um, I have yet to see any strong evidence for them. And as someone who has been to a couple of faith healers and uh, uh, and had them fail utterly, and and by the way, at the age uh, prior to my ability to believe in a god. Right. So we're talking about we're talking about uh, three, four years old. Uh, I couldn't possibly have impacted the outcome. And uh, so you can't really blame the victim. Right. There's uh, uh, all you can do. Well, I mean, I get it. Matthew's laughing because he says, sure, you can blame the victim. <laughs> so. So, yes, you can. But I mean, it's, it's irrational to blame a four year old. Uh, for a lack of healing. Right. And uh, so I, I identify with that. Um, and in fact, um, I don't know when our last uh, I don't know when our last recording 
uh, will go live, but I have renewed a challenge uh, about uh, about faith healing. And I don't know if we share common ground here, uh, Aaron, but I have offered to uh, go to a faith healer uh, or to fly one to me uh, to participate in any ritual, to say any prayer, to become involved in any religious rite of passage, to read any book, to believe any doctrine to the extent that that I can, you know, whatever it takes to have some miracle healing, let's get on with it. I'll work through the recipe, whatever the secret sauce is, you know, let's, let's see if this God is really out there. Of course, the objection will be something like, uh, but God can't be tested. God so, works in mysterious ways. Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, one. often by appearing not to do a damned thing. Yes. <laughs> so, so, sorry, sorry, we've lost our family-friendly rating there. Uh, and, and so anyway, I, I identify with that uh, problem. And I'm sorry that you had to go through that, uh, you know, a failed sort of healing. Are you offended when people talk about it now, this idea that, you know, there's healing out there somewhere? Uh, and how do you handle that? these days when people talk to you about healing i'm not necessarily offended i think i'm just <laughs> i'm just sad um and i suppose i just don't understand this is probably again looking at it from a very autistic point of view but i just don't understand how people can so firmly believe in something that never happens the only miracles that people talk about actually happening are really non-specific things like i had a headache and i prayed and it went away it's never anything, you know, really big, like I lost a leg and then it grew back. And yeah, I just, I just can't have faith in any sort of supernatural healing when I have no empirical evidence that it's any more than a placebo effect. Yeah. Right. Indeed. I don't know what it would take to cause me to believe in a miracle. But when you've got a video of someone's broken, swollen arm, uh, potentially being healed and you're standing uh, two miles from a children's hospital that's filled with, uh, uh, you know, children dying of cancer, you know, you kind of got to ask, what's so special about that arm, right? Yep. <laughs> and uh, uh, most recently I, I heard uh, there, there was a claim about someone who had had uh, uh, some section of small intestine removed and maybe there was a miracle to grow. 10 inches of small intestine back, uh, 10 inches of intestine. And I just find the whole thing so unconvincing. How did we measure that? We can be done with this. Uh, and by the way, this challenge I'll, I'll open up uh, to the listeners. If you're listening and you think miracles are real, we can get this job done. Um, there's a community of amputees all over the world. If your church is willing, open your doors and let's have a healing service where it's only amputees, right? Let's just get the job done. Open your doors. We'll invite the faith healers. We'll invite the amputees. It will only be amputees so that it, so that it's completely obvious when a healing happens and we can be done with this conversation. It's an open challenge for anyone who's uh, willing to take it. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I digress. <laughs> Totally. Yes. <laughs> Your doubts, Erin, when they were coming out, that was before you started doing your uh, your college course or was that while you were doing it? 
they started just they started just before when I was in sixth form. Right. And that's actually a big reason why I decided to do theology because I thought it would save my faith. Oops. Um, right. And so this it, is when you were still fundamentalist. Yeah. So it was it was while I was at theological college that over the course of three years it sort of slowly unraveled. Right. But the reason why I still call myself a Christian and why I still go to church is that I discovered I discovered radical theology and that was what saved any semblance of Christianity for me. So the most famous radical theologian is John Shelby Spong, who I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with. Um, I admire him a lot because he he essentially shows you how how it is possible to interpret the Christian faith in ways that do not require the supernatural at all. He's he's a very, very rational Christian and he was also an, a, a bishop in America. We also have some British equivalents that think similarly. So I've mentioned Richard Holloway before in Scotland. He he thinks the same way. Don Cupid as well and the Church of England. If it weren't for people like that, I probably would have just left entirely. <laughs> right. So it was those people who very much embraced a, a form of Christianity minus the supernatural. And it, it was that. So you've it's you've almost swung the other way, haven't you? You've swung from a very fundamentalist Christianity which absolutely emphasizes the supernatural. So you mentioned it was the arguments. Was it just the arguments? Yeah, it was both doctrinal and personal. I know the argument of suffering is very common, but the reason why it's so common is because it's so valid. And mm. accepting evolution as well, not necessarily in the way that you would think, because I know plenty of Christians accept evolution, but it was the knock-on effect of it. So, for example, in an evolutionary paradigm, which is the way things are. Um, it means that there is horrendous animal suffering long, long, long before humans ever came along and committed the original sin. Because I was always able to explain away natural suffering by original sin. Somehow human sin causes animal suffering. But once you understand evolution and you realize that life has been around millions of years before humans, well then, You've got a God who deliberately created animals to tear each other apart. And he also created them with a nervous system so that they could feel it when they were being torn apart. And yeah, so definitely the problem of evil, both for humans and for animals, kind of the final straw. I just. Yeah, I think the evil and that certainly animal suffering that that takes quite a few people over the line from, from my hearing of various stories so you've swung from that version of christianity that really emphasizes the the spiritual and the supernatural to to one that doesn't and uh and you sort of asked it so now you you don't really accept any form of supernatural or do you kind of think there might be something i'll never say there's definitely not but i pretty much live my life as as if as there a, isn't yeah yeah i I am saying, are you hopeful or are you, do you not even go that far? We well, see, I'm not sure because, again, going back to the problem of evil, yeah. well, that means there's a God who's. <laughs> yeah. I think if I was to believe in a God, it would have to be the God of open theism 
are, are you familiar with open theism? Yeah. Yeah, which is essentially the idea that God isn't all-powerful. So I think that is the only way I could possibly believe in a loving God. But right. You're I, kinder the, towards God than I am because... I, I go a step further and I say if there is a god, he's clearly a trickster god or a, or an evil god. I, I don't see any room for a god that's uh, that's anything other than unpleasant. Yeah, I've forgotten who it was, but there's some philosopher has the evil god argument, and it's quite good. He basically demonstrates that you can just as easily argue for the existence of an evil god than yeah. a loving god, and. They're both yes, as arbitrary right. as each other. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I think it might not be the same person, but certainly somebody has been on unbelievable talking about uh, the evil God and uh, pushing forward the idea of the evil God. I just don't see how, certainly under the Christian model, how you can tell the difference between a perfect God and uh, a perfectly bad God. I just don't see how you could differentiate between the two, frankly. That's my position on that, and I'm quite happy to go that far. I think, for me, the case of hope is gone. I lived in hope for long enough, and <laughs> I'm too old to spend any more time on that now. And now you'd a lot rather be a nihilist? Yeah, you lived I'm... in hope, and now you've... <laughs> yes. it was it was it was just a uh, it was just a juxtaposition joke. Yeah, absolutely. I I. I, I really don't see an issue with nihilism, to be quite honest. I'm quite happy to to um, to bathe in that cesspool. You know, it's <laughs> <laughs> that's probably taking the analogy a little bit too far. But you know, people go, "Oh no, on atheism, all you've got is nihilism," and I'm like, "Okay, you say that like it's a bad thing." <laughs> yeah. So, do you positive nihilist? Yes, yes, quite. You know. Yeah, quite. Thanks for that, Erin. Yeah, not all nihilism is uh, beating yourself with barbed wire. There is no meaning except the meaning which we find for ourselves. Absolutely. I think and that I is absolutely right. And I yep. take tremendous meaning out of the little car I've got outside and the gorgeous daughter that I have. Thank you very much. Erin, I'm, I'm wondering. Don't forget the Xbox. Yeah, let's, yes, let's not forget the Xbox. The one Microsoft product in the world that's actually worth. Uh, oh, sorry. <laughs> PlayStation is better than Xbox. Oh, oh, we have a new oh. fight. We have a new oh. fight. Excellent. Consoles are for people that can't use computers. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. No, so, Aaron, I wanted to talk about open theism for a minute because there's some really interesting thoughts there. And I am not an open theist. But I do think that there is some hope for Christianity in open theism. So when you talked about a God a minute ago that is not all power, that is not the party line in Christianity about God, right? But when you think about Christianity and a God who is not all powerful, just talking about the idea, not talking about a God that actually exists, but how do you understand the story of the Christian God and the sacrifice of his son in open theism? Because there are branches of open theism, just like there are branches of uh, uh, fundamentalism, right? And and so I'm I'm really interested in your thoughts about uh, how you position the Christian God and the Jesus sacrifice in terms of why you're a practicing Christian, even though agnostic inside. 
I'm not actually an, an open theist. I'm kind of beyond that. Oh, sorry. I didn't mean to mischaracterize you. So my apologies. How do you see the story then? I quite like the way Don Cupid looks at it. So he looks at it from like an anthropological point of view. So why did human beings come up with gods in the first place? It's because we wanted meaning in a meaningless universe. So Don Cupid essentially says that overarching desire for meaning, that is God. It's nothing supernatural. It's just that human mm. desire for something beyond ourselves. And of course, love often comes into it. Love and life. I think he call, he says life is a religious concept. Whenever I talk about God, I am just, I'm thinking of it much more as a concept than as a supernatural being. So it's just a concept that causes humans to strive towards something beyond themselves and to live in a way that's more loving and cooperative. And then as for how the crucifixion narrative fit, fits into that, I I don't believe Jesus was God anymore in that you or I was God. Right. And there's certainly much of what Jesus did that's to be admired, particularly how he sort of tried to steer the understanding of religion away from law following towards acting in love. He was also quite good at annoying the religious establishment, which is <laughs> probably a big reason why it didn't end too well for him. So I don't see the cross as God punishing his son or anything like that, you know, to pay for our sins. Mm. So you, are you quite happy to say that there was definitely a Jesus character? Neither of us, it sounds like, would accept a, a God as a reality. Do you think there was a historical Jesus? And how would it change for you if there were and if there weren't? I haven't done much personal research into this, but I, I'm pretty certain Jesus was a historical figure just because that seems to be the scholarly consensus, although mm. I don't claim to know that for sure. I do think, however, there is a massive difference in the historical Jesus and the Christ of faith. You even see this in the Gospels, you know, as the Gospels go along, Jesus levels up. <laughs> he gets more and more powerful, <laughs> supernatural as the years go on. So I think... <laughs> you know, that's, that's, a that's cool interesting. Reference. It, it really was. I was. Would Jesus would Jesus play an Xbox or a PlayStation? That is, a, that is, now, that is now the perennial question. But but that's interesting. So so keep so you accept a historical Jesus if if at some point I don't by the way I have no idea how this would be done if we came up with some historical archaeological evidence uh, or some some sort of combined evidence that there wasn't a Jesus, would it change things for you at all? To be honest, it wouldn't, no, because we've still got these teachings that are written down. Okay, maybe they didn't come from a person called Jesus. Maybe they were just a collection of community teachings from that time. But I still think there's great potential in them. I can still put them into practical use on my work on the ships. Um, the churches are still standing. <laughs> I can still go to even song. So yeah, to answer your question, it probably wouldn't change things that much. And uh, I get that, that is... probably it's the same probably the same for me. Whether Jesus was a historical figure who did 
much of the stuff that he did minus the supernatural stuff or whether the entirety of the Gospels are an amalgamation of various legends, events attributed to a multitude of different people. I think in the end it makes very little difference to me. I, I'm still not accepting the supernatural and I'm still seeing that there is some value in some of the things being said. You know, it's, I, I, I don't think it changes anything for me either. Yeah, so, so my favourite teaching of Jesus or whoever wrote the Gospels, um, well, it definitely wasn't Jesus that wrote the Gospels, that's for sure. No one thinks right. that. Um, right. Anyway, my favourite teaching is the whole idea of the kingdom of God on earth as it was in heaven, because that is how I see the Christian faith. The kingdom of God is not about sitting around waiting until we die, because who knows what happens after we die? Probably nothing. It's all about realising heaven now. Whatever we are sitting around waiting for in heaven, how about we just try and bring that on earth? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I endorse that. So do you have an opinion then on the kind of Christianity where people have a prayer meeting, do a little bit, but then throw their hands up and say, well, in the end, God is in control and he gets what he wishes? I mean, I understand it. It's also a good deal more biblical than anything I'm talking about. But it does frustrate me as a practical theologian. Yeah. Because if faith is going to continue to exist in the 21st century, it has to have some sort of practical good in the world. For example, I saw a picture today when I was researching for something entirely unrelated. And it was soon after the, that horrible Boxing Day tsunami. Was that was it 2006? Anyway, a long time ago. But it was... The one in Indonesia, is that the one you mean? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It was a picture of... It was a mosque, actually, so it wasn't the church. But anyway, thousands of Muslims on their knees praying for the victims of the tsunami. On one hand, I mean, that's wonderful. It's a wonderful display of support. But on the other hand, I'm thinking, <laughs> what practically is that actually going to do for the victims of the atrocity? Unless, of course, by praying, that leads them to go and take practical action, uh -huh. in which case it's fine. But, yeah, I don't... There, there's a phrase we use in Northern Ireland that some people are so heavenly-minded that they're no earthly good. Yes, that's a phrase. Oh, that's, that's a nice turn of phrase. It, it yeah, is a good turn of phrase. I don't know where it comes from originally, but, yes, I, I have heard it. <laughs> I often... Uh, I've said this on the show before. I'll, I'll just... I'll, I'll say it again because I find it... Uh, I, I think that there are some things that we implicitly know that God is not good for. And, uh, and, and when you've got thousands of people on their knees, and this is, this is not a knock on uh, Muslims, because um, you know, after hurricanes in the United States, you'd find the same thing in large churches in the U.S., you know, Christians on oh, their yeah, knees. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm not right. picking on the Muslims, it's just prayer in right. general. Right, I'm, I'm, yeah, just agreeing. And one of the things that they never pray for is for God to turn back time and change mm -hmm. the course of change the course of the hurricane or the tsunami or the volcano uh, or the wildfire. Mm -hmm. This is a prayer. I, th I think there are fundamentally prayers that that people understand not to pray because they're faith shattering kinds of prayers. And so, when some natural disaster uh, takes thousands of lives and and leaves people without fresh water because the sewers have overflowed and uh, you know the the bugs are uh, now a, a a much more real and present danger and you know 
all of those kinds of things happen in wet natural disasters. When those things happen, people don't pray to turn back time. They pray for God to comfort the suffering. And I think it's because down deep, the vast majority of us know that there's no time controlling God. In other words, there's no all-powerful God out there to change the course of human history. Yeah, the way I see it at the minute, if there is a supernatural God, it, it looks like they're a deistic God, in which case, what's the point? Because they're not involved mm -hmm. anyway. Uh, so that's a, that. That is interesting. Um, you know, I haven't thought a lot about deistic gods. Um, I think just because I grew up as a Christian, and uh, you know, that's the environment I live in. Of what possible use is a deistic god? I don't know. <laughs> well, it's, it's he's as much use as the Christian about, god. How I felt about open theism when I looked at it in theological college. Yes, it is. It paints an infinitely better image of God than classical theism. But at the end of the day, it's just another human theory about what God may or may not be. And <laughs> Do you think that people understand that there are kinds of prayers not to pray? Or, or am, I just, am I just wrong on that? Is, are, there, are there reasons that people don't pray certain types of supernatural prayers? Or is it just conditioning? That's a good question. That is. It's never occurred to me it's interesting when you said about the turning back time things i've said on on episodes before that i was for a, a couple of years a member of a prayer for healing team and it was very much a prayer for healing team we prayed for healing we didn't pray for massive things like that you know i can't imagine that i don't think the thought even occurred to us ever to pray can we rewind 24 hours and not have that tsunami, please? Or can we rewind 24 hours so that a building doesn't collapse or that earthquake never happens? Those kinds of prayers never actually happen. But if you've got, looking back at the Bible and the whole thing about move a mountain with the, the faith of a mustard seed, then surely it's if you're going to believe that it's valid to pray for somebody to receive their sight back, then it's also valid to pray for somebody's leg to regrow. Therefore, it's also equally valid to pray that can we go back 24 hours so that disaster X doesn't happen, or at the very least, we can evacuate people so that when disaster X happens, people don't lose their lives in such horrific ways. Yeah, if you're going to take the Bible as literally as I did as a fundamentalist, then all three of those prayers are equally valid. And there was the long day prayer, uh, the long, um, Joshua's, and Joshua's involved in, uh, Aaron, do you remember, is it Joshua that's involved in the, uh, you know, there's some, the, there's the some big the conflict. Moon in the sky. So the one where yeah. the sun, sun stands still or something like that? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, uh, you know, if there's, for me, and, and one of the problems that I had on the way out of, on the way out the door when I was a Christian was it very much seemed to me that this was a God that, you know, if you can cause the earth to stand still, if you can create a long day, right, that's a sort of 
time control. Now, maybe God wasn't tampering with time. You know, maybe he just put his finger uh, on the North Pole, right, and just stopped the stop the earth from rotating um that would seem to have other knock-on effects but never mind right uh, but it, it seems to me to be a sort of time control so there have been objections to uh, you know if you if you ask god for some sort of miracle that hasn't that wasn't done in the bible it's not a demonstration that god can't do the miracle it's a demonstration that it's a kind of miracle that god won't do for whatever reason that is uh private but sufficient uh, for himself I've heard that kind of objection, but it does seem to me that even with that objection, we have a, a God who, uh, at least in one event, was willing to tamper with time by creating a longer day. So did you hear there's a really horrible example? Was it last year, I think it was Bethel Church, but the worship leader's two-year-old daughter died. and Oh, yeah so awful and you know they prayed on stage 24 hours for like a week for her to be raised from the dead and obviously she wasn't and it's just things like that i just don't see how that's compatible with a loving god (laughs) at all Uh, i don't either it's was that out in california i remember the story correctly somewhere out on the on the west coast but it seems like there was some other trouble around that you know because obviously there's a, a certain amount of decay of this little girl over that week and it, the whole story is just is just awful yes um and and the human cost uh so, so you know we've lost we've lost this little girl and that is tragic enough but there's a human cost to getting people to pour out that kind of grief over that long um when i think it would have been arguably better not my call I was not the parents, I'm not the parishioners, I'm not any of those people, but it seems to me that these are the kinds of things that it is better for us to accept uh, and find normal ways of, I don't know if that's fair, it's not normal for a parent to lose a two-year-old, but we do have methods of grieving that acknowledge loss, and that one, I don't know, it just seems... Uh, it seems psychologically destructive. Absolutely. As a chaplain, how would you have counseled uh, the Bethel parishioners uh, in regard to, you know, this sort of prayer request, this raising someone from the dead? Uh, I'm just curious. And it's sort of putting you on the spot, right? Because you probably would think about that a little bit. But what would... Do you have thoughts about that? What would you, what would you say if you do? And feel free not to, for, feel free not to tackle that one. I mean, with these sorts of things, it's easy to think about it in abstract, but it'd be totally different if they were actually in front of me. Mm. Much like was it Boltzmann, Rudolf Boltzmann, like the German rationalists of the twentieth century. I think any of those sorts of things in the Bible. The only way to take them logically seriously is to take them as myth and metaphor. So, for example, people living forever or rising from the dead. I think the only way to reconcile that with reality is that they will live forever as long as we keep remembering them. Mm-hmm. And their impact will live forever. And there, there's that wonderful poem, I want a physicist at my funeral, and it talks about how energy cannot be created or destroyed so even when our bodies decay 
it goes back into the earth and the life cycle begins again. I would not give people the false hope that their daughter is going to walk out of the coffin because it's just not going to happen. I read the story and followed it for a little while as it was going on. And uh, it would have been the kind of story that I would call ridiculous, except that these are people who are lost in a kind of grief that I hope I never, ever have to experience. Yeah. And then to have their God abandon them. You know. (laughs) Yeah. So Sorry, go ahead. I'm just trying to put my mind in a place where you've lost a child, which is terrible enough as it is anyway, but you've got this faith from somewhere where you believe you'll see them walk again and you pray hard for it and it doesn't happen. There's there's something about that uh, that whole situation and I can't get over the empathy which I feel there, but I feel that there's also something unhealthy about that situation but i'm struggling to articulate it well because all i'm feeling is how terrible it must be to be in that level of grief in the first place anyway and surely the praying for days and nothing happening can only increase the grief that you're feeling because now you're losing twice so i will say about these people that i never had a measure of faith that could have allowed me to pray for seven days for that kind of thing. So in one sense, they are extraordinary because I'm just, I'm willing to accept from their sort of personal reports, right? That, that they really believed this little girl was, was going to rise up. And I never had the kind of faith that would have let me pray for seven days for that kind of thing. So if that's the admission that I was never actually a Christian, then so be it. But that was not the kind of faith I ever had. Well, even when I was a fundamentalist, you know, we were proper Calvinist cessationist Christians. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, cessationist just means miracles ended with the Bible. So right. really, I've never, I've never been in a tradition that expected that sort of thing. <laughs> you know, you're our first guest. I think you are our first guest who is like me and uh, Bible miracles ended at the end of apostolic authority. There was no more handing down of gifts. I think you're, I think you're the first guest that has that similar belief. Is that how you understood it? That apostles could pass on spiritual gifts, but disciples could not. And so after the death of the last disciple that encountered an apostle, that was where spiritual gifts ended, that miracles ended, or did you have another, were you raised under a different kind of tradition? but still had cessation of miracles. Well, our tradition had such an extremely high view of the Bible. I dare say they almost worshipped the Bible, which they would definitely hate me to say. Um, Mm. But their view was essentially as soon as John finished the last word of Revelation and the Bible was finished, then miracles ended because God has given us all we could ever possibly need in the Bible and therefore he stopped miracles. Miracles were only ever supposed to be like a stopover until we got the Bible. <laughs> we had exactly the same thought. Um, and we, we'd have had an interesting sort of theological discussion about, so it was clear that the apostles could pass on spiritual gifts by laying on of hands. And so the, the interesting theological discussion would only have been 
did it cease for the apostles and the disciples at the, you know, at, at, at the period of last sentence, right? Or did those spiritual gifts continue to the death of those people's lives? But we understood the miracle claims the same way, regardless of where we put the that last moment in time. So uh, very interesting. Very, yeah, well, I mean, that's, that's why I, even when I was still a proper Christian, I was only really interested in practical theology because at the end of the day, when it comes to all these doctrinal debates, there is no way ever to know who's right. We're just debating extremely esoteric things that have no bearing on real life. And I would much rather just get on with it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, indeed. Absolutely. Indeed. I think uh, in some of the churches where I've been, that sort of attitude has been described as Jesus with skin. Yes, in fact, I actually read that someone calling a chaplain God with skin, and I thought, well, A, that's weird, B, that's also quite a good description. <laughs> yes, yes, I agree. It is both weird, but also a helpful description as well. <laughs> so, um, uh, I think, A, that's weird happens for me an awful lot these days. <laughs> and I think I think I'm going to get to a chance to use that over the Thanksgiving holidays because I have a lot of fundamentalist family. Oh, uh, yes. And um, a that Aaron told me to tell you, a that's weird. <laughs> <laughs> and then B is something nice. <laughs> right, right. Uh, uh, it so, does oh. mean that I view the phrase "give me some skin" slightly differently now. That's <laughs> It's just because in my autistic, hyper-literalist mind, I just get an image of someone running around with like a skin suit on, and it's really weird. Um, <laughs> yes, it's, it's, um, it's a call back to um, if either of you have ever seen the movie Men in Black. There's okay. A, okay. I'm trying to get my teenager to watch it with me, but she doesn't do sci-fi. What? <laughs> but it, I know. <laughs> But it's like hardly sci-fi. I mean, I mean, okay, it's sci-fi, right? But it is like if she likes comedy, the comedy comes first. Sci-fi was just a way to deliver the comedy. Com-fi. <laughs> yeah. Com-sci-fi. Com yes. Okay. So somebody's yeah. walking around town in a new Edgar suit. Sorry, that's the the, the line from Men in Black. For those, uh, it, it's, you know, it's a skin suit for the alien, right? It's the Edgar dude. Um, so. Yeah. Uh, anyway, I, I digress, but I can't believe you can't get her to watch Men in Black, dude. That is, um, yeah. No, I'm, I've been trying her on The Matrix for years, and it's just not happening. So, Men in Black might be better. Careful. <laughs> Aaron, I, so you are a sci-fi fan, too? I am, yes. Matthew's going to replace me... Uh, <laughs> be hosting still unbelievable. Matthew's going to replace me. He's, he's been he's been trying to do that with Darren anyway. I uh, can't say that I blame him. But is there a hope for a secular world where there is a a world without Christianity? And and can you see a place where you could live uh, entirely secularly without? Um, I don't, I don't want to mischaracterize this without, without Christian tradition. Could you happily find that kind of place? And what would it take? Because I get that Christianity gives us community, 
it gives us certain deep rituals. It, uh, you know, it provides things that we seem to need. And so can you see a place where you exercise your skepticism without Christianity in any way? And what would that take? Theoretically, yes, but I don't quite see it happening in my lifetime because, I mean, the secular community, it just, like you said, it doesn't have the community and ritual aspects. You know, Christianity has had 2,000 years to build plenty of communities. Humanism mm. is only really beginning. And I know there are some excellent humanist communities, but... For, well, for right now, it is much, much, much easier for me to plug myself into a church community than it ever would be for me to find a secular community in the same way. I don't practice any religion, though I do want to say thank you for presenting probably the most palatable ideas about Christianity that we've had. Matthew's going to get on to me because he's going to say I say that every time. Probably, <laughs> You were, weren't you? <laughs> I'm saying but, nothing. But I do think that open theology, the Christianity that you presented where Jesus was was about interrupting the religious establishment, uh, that, that there's a God that really does want the best for us. And, you know, that's a story that we tell ourselves. And the reason that we tell ourselves is because what we're after is on earth as it is in heaven, right? That was, uh, that was an incredibly powerful moment for me in this show. And so while I'm not a practicing Christian, that was a really powerful idea. And I think one of the things that secular communities miss is this renewing of each other's community on a regular basis, right? So Christians, uh, sorry, this should be a this should be a t-shirt. I'm sorry, Christians do it on Sundays. But, <laughs> but we need that sort of regular renewal of community. And I think that the the skeptical world doesn't do that very well. Uh, and I don't know under a secular humanist view, and I'm and I'm happy to say that I am one, I don't know how to do that currently, how to build a community that agrees that it is important to get together on a really, really regular basis, even when it's hard, because Christianity brings that, that carrot and the stick approach, right? And secular humanism doesn't have a stick. It just has a carrot. And, you know, that, that's all we have. And Christianity can sort of threaten you to be there on Sundays. And... So I'm, I am afraid that you are right. I don't see how it can happen uh, in our lifetimes. Now, there, there, are people, there are people like Greta Vosper in Canada or Bart Campolo who are setting up humanist communities that do meet at least once a week and kind of function like a church without the doctrine. And, you know, if one of those existed near me, I would very happily, very happily join it. But... They're few and far between at the minute. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And go ahead, Matthew. I'm sorry. I think this Christmas will be a leveler for this issue because 
Christians and other religions won't be able to go out and in their communities and do the things that they normally do as a as a, as a social group seeing each other face to face because of coronavirus those that do are running a risk i'm sure there there'll be some that will try it but they're running it is going to be a risky activity to do either due to sanctions or due to catching the virus itself so i think this christmas provides an opportunity of leveling of that difficulty and i think secular groups which want to try and do something will find that they're on an equal footing with christian groups because Christian groups can't meet face-to-face or will be choosing not to meet face-to-face. And so they'll be looking for an alternative way to do it. So I think this year is a good year for the community to try things and see what works and get a leg up on the whole building of community. I suppose my approach is quite pragmatic in that, you know, Christianity's here. It's here to stay. I you could create something entirely new but i think it's easier and also more productive to try and change the already existing structures than try and start from scratch but maybe i'm maybe i'm too pessimistic i i can see that if open theology took hold if universal unitarian churches were more prevalent uh it it might be that there's a a clearer path to get from a society whose hopes are largely founded on some sort of fantasy of the past, right? And and maybe we can turn that around at some point. And I certainly hope that we can turn it around so that our hope in the future is in each other. That is a thing that I would loudly support. It's a thing that I do loudly support. Uh, I don't think there's a, a heaven as far as I can tell. There's no reason to think that there is one. But we do have each other right now, and we can do a lot with that if we only will. To touch on a subject that you mentioned to us very early on in, I think, even your first email to us, uh, Erin, where in all this bigger picture of what we've been talking around does the concept of religious fictionism fit in, or whatever alternative phrase we want to use to describe that? Because we did an episode on that with uh, Philip Goff, which has, has been a popular episode, an episode I really enjoyed and I really liked his idea. So where do you see that kind of idea fitting into this broader context of what we're talking about? So basically everything I've said is a form of religious fictionalism and I really admire Philip, is it Goff you pronounce Yes. Him? Yes. <laughs> anyway, I really admire him. He's obviously much more educated than I am, but essentially religious fictionalism is the idea that religion was created by humans it wasn't given to us from on high it was developed by humans it was a fiction but just because it is fiction doesn't mean it can't be useful i mean (laughs) we've been talking about sci-fi maybe it's a bit crass to compare religion to sci-fi but i mean people find massive meaning and even community around their favorite sci-fi franchise Mm -hmm. Religion is the same on a much, much larger scale. In fact, Richard Holloway, my theological hero, has just released a book called The Stories We Tell Ourselves. And as the name suggests, religions are just stories we tell ourselves to try and make sense of our place in this world. As long as they can stir us to practical action and make the world a better place, I don't see how it causes any harm. 
we have just talked about how it can cause a lot of harm if you start dogmatizing everything which is why i think religious fictionalism is useful because it helps get people away from this dogmatic reasoning that causes all these problems thank you and it's i think that's a really good point that you've just made you and i and andrew too all left a very dogmatic literalistic regimented form of christianity for something that we consider better and part of that better is a more human if that's the right word to use approach to to other people and their needs so i guess the question which i was driving at which is Falling out. This is a problem with getting old, is you start building up to a question, then by the time you get there, the question has dropped out of your brain. Um, <laughs> the, the question I was getting to was, oh, bloody hell. <laughs> this is so funny. <laughs> um, now it's my turn to leave you dangling. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and you do it so well, sir. The question so, I often get is, what's the point? <laughs> well... I, I don't want to ask that. It's what can we do about those forms of religion which prevent us mm. from being better humans to each other? Mm. Well, I think about what was it that got me out of my fundamentalism? I think it was contact with the outside world. You know, I fully believed, for example, that homosexuals were awful, horrible people until I actually met one. And then I was like, Oh, <laughs> likewise with Catholics and all the rest. So I hope that as the world becomes more secular and more integrated, that, you know, young people who are brought up in fundamentalist environments will be exposed to different ideas much earlier on. And I mean, I think the study, the statistics show that young people are leaving fundamentalist faith at a faster rate than ever before. So I think all we can really do is model a better way of doing things, encourage dialogue, and just hope that, you know, just trust that people will work through it in their own time and we, we can't force them. <laughs> mm. How do we build value in each other and, uh, and not in, uh, you know, the idea that this world is not my home? I'm just passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. Sorry, old gospel song. Uh, so to get from here to there, uh, I've got, uh, I'll change tracks just for a second. I've got a family, uh, distant family member who's going through a divorce right now. And she, uh, she told uh, her soon to be ex-husband that the, the next person that uh, she falls in love with will love God more than he loves her. And for me, that's such a tragic statement and it identifies the problem that I was going to talk about more abstractly. And that is that I think we need to build value in each other and not in uh, some idea of a, uh, of a magic place where all of our wishes come true. Sorry, I realize that's not the typical view of heaven, but you know, uh, a place where there are no more tears, no more sorrow, that there's a uh, a perfect loving God and there's never any conflict. I don't think that's reasonable, but we can have a better earth, I think, a better world for each other if we quit uh, laying up in store for ourselves things in heaven and lay up for ourselves 
value between each other. Exactly, because at the end of the day, nobody knows what happens after we die, even if they claim they do. You know, I'm personally of the thought that we'll probably just decay and that's it, which is... <laughs> but I should say that in the pulpit. That would go down well. Um, <laughs> <laughs> just let me know. I, I want to I be on Zoom when you say that. I just... <laughs> anyway, so I would agree with you that, yes, I mean, in the church I go to, I mean, there are some other agnostics, but we're definitely in the minority, which is understandable. The vast majority or theists, but we all get together because we share a common aim of making life better for everyone on earth. You know, we've, we may disagree over, you know, our eternal destiny, but that's one thing we can agree on. And that's one thing that even, you know, secularists and Christians should hopefully agree on. But, you mm. know, all we can know for sure is that we've got the here and now and we could really make the most of it. Yes, we should. Absolutely. So going back to your practical work, Erin, how much time are you spending each week as um, as a secular chaplain or whatever? What is the label that you call yourself? Um, well, like I said, I'm just a volunteer. It is a chaplaincy organisation, but at the right. minute I'm nothing but a volunteer. Right. Um, obviously, because Corona, I'm doing like nothing. But I'm hoping when things finally open up again to get back to it as much as I can because I do like it a lot. Um, and it is, it is a Christian organisation, but the reason why I do like it so much is that we don't, we don't preach, preach to the sailors because, you know, we're talking to people of all faiths and none. It's very much about meeting their practical needs. And if they want to talk God or if they want to go to church, excellent, we'll, we'll help them do that. But unless they explicitly ask for it, you know, we just look after their practical and social needs. And yeah, we don't try and tell them they're going to hell. Right. <laughs> and um, I, it's probably worth pointing out that even though it's Merchant Navy and you're based in Scotland, some of the people that you're seeing won't be residents or, or locals. They could be people from all over the world who are just stopping oh, yeah. by on a, on a boat that's loading and they're, they're on shore for a couple of days while that happens. Yeah, in fact, the majority are either Eastern European or Filipino. Um, the Eastern Europeans stereotypically have no time for God. The Filipinos tend to be culturally Catholic, so they may be more inclined to want to have a prayer service or something, which I am more than happy to do. Um, so, yeah, it really <laughs> you never know what sort of scenario you'll get until you walk on board. Um, it's good fun. <laughs> it's, it's interesting you say that, though. So there is actually from whichever part of the world these people are from, there is a, a cultural norm usually that that most people will will be within yeah sorry how should you clarify a bit sorry um so depending on what part of the world they're from what country or what region of the world they're from there is a cultural norm that they fall within with regards to their attitude towards religion and the form of religion that they'll take yes and of course i don't want to like profile or stereotype people but on the whole you can generally tell and 
I've even had like a British sailor. It's not often you actually get British sailors anymore. But, you know, he said to me, I don't believe in God. I never have. But I like the work that your charity does because you're good people and you help us out. <laughs> so it's it really is that simple. And is is there any you say it's a charity who supports the charity is it the local population does the do any of the organizations that are involved in these uh, ships donate anything at all towards charity so there's there's an umbrella organization called the international christian maritime association which is like a blanket organization for loads of different charities so right most denominations have one like the anglican one is by far the biggest they have about 200 ports around the world that they work in and then there's wow there's a, there's a few others of varying different denominations so yeah it's a it's a surprisingly big operation <laughs> that is yeah. much bigger than uh than i would have than i would have thought do you this is just sheer curiosity. Do you ever come across uh, crews from the Middle East and are they open to, if you have, are they open to Christian chaplains? Uh, so I guess I should not just say Middle East, but do you come across uh, ships that are uh, you know, largely from Muslims, uh, Muslim countries, that kind of thing. And are you ever called uh, on board them? And I'm, now I'm thinking maybe not because of the language barrier, but I'm curious if you, if you have any experience there at all. The language barrier is interesting because English is the language of the sea to make things workable. You know, it's the only ah. way. It's the only way you can do things if you've got a multinational crew. So thankfully they all speak functional English because I'm a terribly lazy European who only speaks English. Um, so to answer just question, adopted you as an American. <laughs> <laughs> We're all that lazy too. <laughs> to answer your question, I've never actually come across a Muslim crew, um, but I have been on Indian ships, which tend to be mm. Hindu. And yeah, from, from my narrow experience, it's never really been a problem. I did actually... I once did work experience with a different charity, you know, same work, but their approach was much more evangelical. And they were actually told to get off a ship because they were just preaching at people, which oh, surprised wow. me a lot because in the more practical approach that the charity I volunteer for takes, we're always, we're always welcome. We've never been kicked off. But when these people decided to be really evangelical, they were told to clear off. So, yeah, that doesn't work with sailors. <laughs> yeah, I, I can. Well, and. It's, so I don't know anything about this, right? This is this is me forecasting about a thing that I've never experienced, which almost certainly means I'm wrong. But you can be evangelical in your neighborhood. But. I'm guessing that the dynamics of being on board ship and away from home for, uh, I don't know, uh, you know, I'm guessing they're away for, you know, weeks or months at least. And that sort of the average is nine months. But with Corona, some of them have been on board for more than a year, which is just a humanitarian disaster. Oh, wow. And so that sort of evangelical approach could be quite um, it could be almost a little I don't know if hostile is the right word, but I can see where that would be a hard pill to swallow. 
um, you're, you're sort of invading a home that they've been in in solitary for for months. So yeah, I, I can. That's see a, that's a really good going. observation. That's actually something we're told in our training. You are going into these people's home. It is their home. Act respectfully. Mm. Don't do anything you wouldn't do in someone else's home. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's a really good um, point. That. And I, I don't know if cargo ships are the same way, but I know that uh, at least on military vessels, the quarters are really very close anyway. And so there can be quite a lot of social tension that people just have to get on with, right? Because, because you're going to see these people day in and day out. And so anything that, that can sort of make that worse um, to be avoided. Proselytizing, I'm guessing, this wouldn't go over very well. <laughs> Speaking for myself, I learned some things and have some approaches to religion that I didn't have prior to this conversation. And that's uh, so why I expressed that earlier, that that idea that we do Christianity if we do to not achieve some heavenly home, but a better earthly home. That's a really appealing idea. And while it probably won't send me back to church, in fact, it won't send me back to church, I do think that if I found a group of Christians who had that sort of open theological view, I could, I could happily endorse that and, uh, you know, and, and get along in that community quite happily. So, Aaron, thank you. Uh, you know, thank you for bringing that. So yes. basically, we've just got to convince you to move to Scotland because then you can find such a community. Absolutely. <laughs> and you'll they, they be a better person me. for it as well. I mean, double win. <laughs> so they, they, they would see, they would see Georgia, United States, and they wouldn't even let me off the plane. <laughs> As I Not told to mention you, the fact that we're the coronavirus capital of the world. Oh, dear. <laughs> yeah, but as I also told you over the weekend, Georgia is the hero of the rest of the world at the moment. Right. Um, you know, that is a that is a topic that hopefully we will get to on another show. I, I don't want to dive deeply into politics. Um because we're right at the end of this, uh, Aaron, I would love to hear what you have to say uh, on American politics. <laughs> Good grief. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and and you are welcome back at, at any time to talk about anything that you would like. I will say that I am uh, I am disappointed in my native land at the moment that we have not at this point acknowledged that we have a president elect. Uh, that we have not begun that transition process is a shameful blot on the history of the United States. And if you are listening to this, if you have any decency, it is time to encourage your senators and all of your Congress critters, uh, your, your, your representatives in the House, uh, all of your community, it's time to preach it from your pulpits, that America has moved on no matter what candidate you promote. And we are, we are not only harming ourselves, but we harm our allies. We harm each other because we are not transitioning uh, to a new administration, Biden and, and his transition 
team are not being given daily briefings on coronavirus. They're not being given daily military briefings. It is time for America to move on. And I urge you, if you are listening, regardless of your political conviction, to stand with the law of this country and help us move on. It is not only good for us, it is good for our allies in the rest of the world. And before I ask Erin if she has a favorite Bible character, because I didn't warn her in advance that I was going to ask that question, there's, I think there's something I'd like to pull out of this episode is, if we're one of those people who are towards the extremes, and I probably have to begrudgingly admit that I might be one of those people who's in the gray area, that's close to an extreme. Let's think about stepping back away from that. doesn't matter whether you're the fundamentalist end of Christianity or uh, let's make religion, let's ban religion completely end of atheism. Let's step back away from both of those two extremes to, uh, to a more human point in the middle where we accept people with their faults, but also accept that everybody, regardless of what they think and believe, is trying to achieve something better. And let's actively, as part of that, try to achieve something better. Let's be nice to our fellow man, regardless of where they're from, whether it's this country or another country, whether it's our opinion on religion or someone else's opinion on religion. Let's all be of an attitude of, what does this person that I'm communicating with need or want from me in order to be a better person? And what do they need or want from me in order to think that I am a better person? And if we can answer both of those questions satisfactorily in an engagement with someone, then we have made the world a better place. And is that really such a bad thing? So Erin, do you have a favorite Bible character? Have I given you enough notice? And if you're prepared to say yes, who are they? It's not quite a character, but it's a biblical author, if that counts. Um, I'm sure we can make that count. The unnamed author of Ecclesiastes is my favourite, because Ecclesiastes is just an excellent example of positive nihilism. In fact, the very first verse is, everything is meaningless. So. <laughs> there we go. Christianity endorses nihilism. There we have it. I think that would be Judaism. Since Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament. Oh, yeah. Good, good theological point. I think that'd be Judaism. Uh, so, I mean, you know, some, some Christians don't endorse the Old Testament. Like, what are you doing with that stuff? <laughs> I don't know. Um, so some Christians would. Anyway, sorry. I was, I was nitpicking theology, Matthew. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. I think that is a great answer, Erin. It just sums you up and you come up with a beautiful answer to a question that I completely wasn't expecting. So wonderful. Bravo. Thank you ever so much. Any final thoughts, Erin, before we slide out? I think perhaps one final thing to point out is that this isn't a uniquely Christian phenomenon. In fact, the Jews have been doing it much longer than we have. You know, secular Judaism has been a thing for decades. So the secular Jews show us how religion can be used as a culture and a practice without needing supernatural intervention. And I think Christianity will eventually catch up with them. Thank you. That is beautifully said. And finally, then, if listeners would like to contact you, is there a way they can contact you if they want to 
support the charity that you work for? Is there a way that they can do that? So the charity is the Mission to Seafarers and if you Google them you can get their website and various donation links. There will be a link in the show notes. For my personal website it is erinburnettauthor.co.uk and my Facebook page is also Erin Burnett Author. I need to put the author on the end because Erin Burnett is a CNN newsreader and she steals all my Google hits. Oh, that oh, is well. so inconsiderate, isn't it? I'm <laughs> sure you're far more awesomer than, than she is as well. Yes, indeed. Any and all feedback is to the usual place, reasonpress at gmail.com. Links to things that we've mentioned in the show will be in the show notes. Thank you so much, Erin. It's been a pleasure. And until next time, have a lovely life. Thank you so much. That was fun. (laughs) You have been listening to a podcast by Reason Press. To get in touch, email reasonpress at gmail.com or see our website, reasonpress.net, where you'll also find our book, Still Unbelievable. We welcome more feedback and you might even end up on an episode. Our theme music was written for us by Holly. You can hear more of her music at soundcloud.com slash hollybishop. You can support us by buying some of Holly's music and telling her we sent you.